When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We have some breaking news for you in our health lead today. The U.S. has now topped four and a half million, four and a half million coronavirus infections in just six months. Deaths from COVID-19 are regrettably rising as well, with more than a thousand deaths per day each of the last four days. On Capitol Hill this morning, the nation's top public health officials reiterated that Americans need to do five basic things in order to help get this pandemic under control. They are wearing masks, social and physical distancing, avoiding bars, avoiding crowds, and wash your hands. Instead of underlining this information today, President Trump has been spending his time defending what most Americans think has been a poor response to the pandemic. The president tweeting nonsense that, quote, if we had no testing or bad testing, we would show very few cases, which is kind of like saying no pregnancy tests would mean no one is pregnant, which is obviously not the case. To say nothing of the fact that with less than 5% of the world's population, the United States, according to official numbers, has more than 20% of the world's coronavirus deaths. It's a tragedy compounded by a government response that has been and remains inadequate. A bit of encouraging news on the vaccine front today, however. Dr. Anthony Fauci said he thinks a safe and effective vaccine could be ready to go by the end of 2020 or early next year, and that all Americans will, in phases, have access to it as CNN's Nick Watt reports from the coronavirus hotspot of California. The United States response stands out as among the worst of any country in the world. Here, in part, is why. We really functionally shut down only about 50 percent in the sense of the totality of the country. And when we reopened? There were some states that did it very well, and there were some states that did not. And the nationwide protests? Testing the government limit the protesting? I, I, I don't think that's relevant to... Well, to, you just said if it increases the spread of the virus, I'm just asking, should we limit it? Well, I'm, I'm not in a position to determine what the government can do in a forceful way. The preliminary results suggest, and I know because I've been a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests, is people are not getting infected there as much because they are observing those rules. So what now? Well, we're still working on testing. Turnaround times are definitely improving, but we cannot test our way out of this or any other pandemic. Testing does not replace personal responsibility. Masks, distancing, hand washing, avoiding crowds and indoor bars and the like. If we did those five things, we've done modeling data, we get the same bang for the buck is if we just shut the entire economy down. Vaccine optimism growing. Ultimately, over a period of time in 2021, if we have, and I think we will have, uh, a safe and effective vaccine, that Americans will be able to get it. Meanwhile, the death toll right now is still alarmingly high nationwide. But look what's happening now in Oklahoma, Montana, Mississippi, Missouri, all largely spared in the spring, now seeing more cases than ever. And Illinois, hit hard in the spring, surging once more. Sadly, I just can't see the cost-benefit ratio letting people sit in bars. 
Meantime, the country is still getting muddled messaging from the very top. No one is immune. No one is immune. 25 minutes later, while pushing for schools to reopen. Young people are almost immune to this disease. The younger, the better. Not true. Still, this morning in Jefferson, Georgia, kids can go back to class. Some just don't want to. Scared. Now, the CDC has just put out what it calls its ensemble forecast, a kind of look of where we're going. They take a bunch of different models and mash them together. It is sobering. The CDC is now saying that another 20,000 Americans could die just within the next three weeks. And we also just passed four and a half million cases in this country. Jake, that last half million took us about a week. All right, Nick Watt in California, thanks so much. Joining me now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, the focus of today's hearing on Capitol Hill was the national plan to fight the coronavirus. But frankly, we're six months in. Do we have a national public health plan to effectively fight this pandemic? There, we, we don't have a national health plan. And everything you hear lately, Jake, is that we're going to sort of hand this off to the states and to the communities. Uh, it's a problem, and because you see these sort of these patchwork of waves across the country, started in the West Coast, obviously saw what happened in New York, now the South, moving to the Midwest, you're going to keep seeing these patterns because, you know, we're a big country and people do move around. There's not a consensus on how to treat things. There's not a unified policy around masks or the five things that you mentioned. If we just did the five things that you mentioned for three weeks... Uh, it, it would probably, you know, convincingly turn this thing around. But since there's, since there's no national plan, we're not doing it. One of the major points of the hearing is that the public, we need to change our behavior. Uh, take a listen to CDC Director Dr. Redfield. We can get back without these unintended consequences, the face masks, the social distancing, the hand hygiene, uh, staying smart about gatherings, and staying out of crowded bars and crowded restaurants. If we did those five things, we get the same bang for the buck is if we just shut the entire economy down. Do you agree with that? Is it equivalent, basically, the same bang for the buck? Yeah, I, I think so, Jake. And there's evidence of countries around the world that did not go into shutdown that were able to dramatically bring their, their numbers down. I mean, this, this, this little strand of genetic material, this little strand of RNA is not as frightening as this whole thing is. That's not a very hardy virus. It's pretty easily contained by a mask. Can't jump that far. So it, without shutting things down, you wear a mask, maintain physical distance, uh, avoid the really high-risk places, which is going to be indoor, closely clustered for duration people without masks, like restaurants and bars, and hand hygiene. And we could turn this around within a few weeks. I mean, that, that's, that's the thing. And, and if you don't believe it, Look at many countries around the world. They don't have a vaccine or any other therapies that we don't, and they're, they're in much better shape. That's, that's what they did. Sanjay, Dr. Fauci has said he does not believe that the U.S. needs to go to a nationwide lockdown. Why not? Yeah, well, I was listening to those hearings uh, today as well. And, you know, he's obviously uh, talked a lot about what it would take to reopen safely. But listen to how he phrased that specifically about the country locking down. I don't think we need to go to lockdown again and, and, and shelter in place. There are situations, as I've mentioned to you before on multiple interviews, where when they were trying to open up a state or a city, that there were certain guidelines that were skipped over. Maybe you're in a phase two 
and you need to pause and maybe go back to phase one. That's entirely conceivable and maybe recommended. I don't think we need to go all the way back to lockdown. There's no question, Jake, that, that states opened earlier than they should have. And frankly, if you look at the gating criteria closely, you, can't, you can make the case that no state followed all the criteria before opening. Remember, Jake, uh, you got to be going down case count 14 days in a row. You have to have adequate testing. Those are some of the gating criteria to move from one phase to the next phase. If you look at your community, your state, and you haven't gone down 14 days in a row and you don't have adequate testing, you probably need to go back to an earlier phase. I think that's what he's saying. It may not be a shutdown, but you may have to close certain things down again. The testings are Admiral Giroir. Uh, I interviewed him on Sunday, and his remarks uh, today were just as confusing as they were to me on Sunday. He basically, he said he acknowledged the U.S. is not able to turn around test results as quickly as we should be uh, with it within a day, within two days, let's say. Uh, but Giroir also suggested that the people in charge of testing, they have everything they need. Obviously, they do not. Where is this disconnect and, and what more needs to be done to get the testing and the results up to speed? The, the disconnect, Jake, and I've been thinking about this a lot and I watched your interview on Sunday. I spoke to him a little bit last night. Um, the disconnect is that they're changing the goal line, Jake. I mean, if, you, if the goal line says, hey, look, we just need to do enough testing to surge in hotspots and to identify where the fires are, uh, then, yeah, we have what we need to do that. But the idea of doing surveillance testing, we know this spreads asymptomatically, so you got to test people who don't have symptoms. How else are you going to find it? They can still spread it. We know that. We're not doing surveillance testing. We're not doing what's called assurance testing. What assurances do you have, Jake, that uh, you don't have the virus and that the people that you're working with today don't have the virus? We don't have that sort of assurance testing. So yes, if you say, hey, look, we just need to do the basic minimum, which is just hold pressure on a wound, then maybe you could say we have enough testing. That's never been an adequate goal, and it's, and it's still not. And we really have to increase testing ultimately to get around this thing. Just imagine if every kid and every teacher, when schools open up, were tested before going into the school and they got immediate results, it would be much safer to send kids back to school. But we're nowhere near there. Um, Sanjay, Dr. Fauci said that 30,000 people have already enrolled in this phase three vaccine trial, which began at the beginning of this week. The head of the public-private partnership overseeing the vaccine development said that he hopes any vaccine could be 90 percent effective. But Fauci seem to express some caution about a 90% effect, effectiveness rate, effect, uh, efficacy rate in, in your conversation with him. Why? Well, I, I think it's, that's a very audacious number. I mean, typically, if you think about vaccines, there are some that exceed 90% uh, if you get a couple of shots, a couple of booster shots. But many of them, like the flu shot, which would be a good analogy, you know, hovers around 60, 70%, sometimes lower, sometimes higher. Uh, so, that, you know, the idea of saying 90% is a really high sort of goal. And it, frankly, as you know, Jake, it becomes the expectation of this. Here's how I'd explain it. <clears throat> we don't know how effective this is. We know people generate a certain type of antibody in response to the vaccine. But if you were to say to me, well, how effective are those antibodies? We don't have what's called a correlative measure. I can't tell you those are 20 pounds effective or those are three yards worth effective. There isn't a language to sort of describe the efficacy of those antibodies. We just don't know yet. So we have to do the trials. It could be that these people have tons of neutralizing antibodies, but they're not nearly as protective as we thought. 
It could be that some people have very few neutralizing antibodies and it's way more protective than we thought. That's why you got to do the studies. I was surprised, to be honest, Jake, that, uh, that Monsef Sloy, who's the head of Operation Warp Speed, said 90% uh, to, to Elizabeth Cohen, who interviewed him yesterday. It's, it's a high number. Yeah, it is indeed. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate your time and your expertise as always. In just a few hours, millions of Americans are set to lose key benefits, that is, that are helping to keep food on their tables and roofs over their heads. That's unless Congress acts. But how is that going to work if the Senate just left for the weekend? Stay with us on that. Then President Trump just said that most American cities are doing real well with the pandemic. Is that true? Stay with us. The money lead now. In a matter of hours, the federal government will cut off the extra benefits that millions of unemployed Americans have been depending on during this pandemic. From what we heard today from the White House and House Speaker Pelosi, Republicans and Democrats in Congress seem to be light years away from any sort of a deal. And on top of that, both the U.S. Senate and the House have already adjourned for the weekend. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. And and Manu, if I can speak frankly for a second on behalf of the millions of Americans who are depending on this government help during this pandemic, who could face eviction tomorrow, the first of the month, who might not be able to afford food or medicine within the next few days, how on earth can the House and Senate adjourn for the weekend with the deadline approaching now? Yeah, the Senate left yesterday. They returned on Monday. The House left today. They're actually not going to come back until there's any deal that could be reached. And at that point, members will be given 24 hours notice to return. And the two sides are so far apart on any deal at the moment. Just the Senate Republican bill is $2 trillion different than the House Democratic bill. And now the Trump administration is pushing for a short-term deal to extend jobless benefits and deal with this eviction moratorium that's expired. But the Democrats say that is simply not enough and much more needs to be on the table. Now, talks are going to continue, including tomorrow morning in Nancy Pelosi's office. She will meet also with the Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, and White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. But they are very downbeat about the prospects. And already the finger pointing is intensifying. Just today, uh, just moments ago, the president uh, put out a tweet uh, attacking the Democrats over the issue of jobless benefits, uh, saying Pelosi and Schumer blocked desperately needed unemployment payments, which is so terrible, especially since they fully understand that it was not the workers' fault that they are unemployed. It's the fault of China. Now, he's referring to jobless benefit extension that was offered on the Senate floor by Republicans yesterday at $200 a week from the current $600 a week level that is expiring today. Democrats say that is not enough. And behind closed doors, the White House tried to propose a one-week extension of those $600 a week jobless benefits that the Democrats rejected. Now, Nancy Pelosi was asked about that today, and she called it all a stunt. It's a public relations stunt on their part. What they did do yesterday was put on the floor $200 a week. That's what they put forth yesterday, $200 a week. That's not what... that's, that's so beneath the, the um, value of America's workforce. Now, Pelosi's still pushing Jake for a comprehensive deal, but Mark Meadows said yesterday he is very skeptical they could reach such a big, large-scale agreement. Jake. Uh, Manu, what about all the people who had been relying on the eviction moratorium? That expired last week. Tomorrow is the first of the month. Rent is due. 
Yeah, and that's a real concern for people. Now, there's a th the law requires 30 days notice before someone is evicted. So presumably, lawmakers could get a deal before some people get kicked out of their houses. They're, 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 they're renting. Uh, there are millions of Americans that could be at risk of being evicted. Now, housing advocates, Jake, say that people who are facing the prospects of not paying their rent payments should talk to their landlords, presumably get a deal, and presumably by then, Jake, Congress will figure a way around this issue. Both sides contend they want to deal with this again, but it's unclear just how they'll do that, Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. In our politics lead, we are 94 days away from the presidential election and President Trump down in the polls, continuing to face a deadly pandemic and economic catastrophe, continues to focus instead on conspiracy theories in an apparent attempt to preemptively undermine the results of the November 3rd election. This is going to be the greatest election disaster in history. It'll be fixed. It'll be rigged. No evidence of any of that, of course. The Trump campaign is currently suspending TV ads until its new campaign manager and his team can figure out their new message. The irony here, of course, is that if the president put the full weight of the federal government towards containing this pandemic, which has cost more than 150,000 Americans their lives, Instead of focusing so much on his reelection, he would be in much better shape politically, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. With the pandemic raging, President Trump is attempting to sow doubt about the legitimacy of the election that he's at risk of losing. Everyone knows mail-in ballots are a disaster. At a roundtable on policing, President Trump continued his attacks on mail-in voting today with a series of unproven claims as he sought to compare it to foreign interference. You guys like to talk about Russia and China and other places? They'll be able to forge ballots, they'll forge them, they'll do whatever they have to do. Trump complained that it will take too long to count the votes if Americans cast ballots by mail. You won't know the election result for weeks, months, maybe years after. Maybe you'll never know the election result, and that's what I'm concerned with. But he failed to explain why the White House won't commit to boosting resources in states to ensure they're prepared for that scenario, if that's really his concern. This will be catastrophic for our nation, and you'll see it. I'm always right about things like this. Trump's comments came just hours after his senior advisor, Stephen Miller, tried to back him up with his own inaccurate claims about mail-in ballots. Nobody who mails in a ballot has their identity confirmed. Nobody checks to see if they're even a U.S. citizen. Think about that. What Miller said isn't true or even close. Non-citizens aren't allowed to register to vote in federal elections, and mail-in ballots are authenticated several ways, including with unique barcodes and signature verifications. Trump's ramped-up attacks are based on false, unfounded, or exaggerated claims and come amid a series of polls that show him trailing Joe Biden. Aides have urged the president to focus on his COVID-19 response to boost his standing with voters, but it's not clear he's taking their advice. So can you assure anybody of anything? I do Trump criticized I Congressman Jim Clyburn after he showed a graph during today's hearing and asked top experts to explain why the U.S. has not been able to get a grip on the virus in the way that Europe has. We started going up while the European countries, European Union plateaued and is going down. Trump asked somebody to please tell Congressman Clyburn, who doesn't have a clue, that it's because we do much more testing. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci had a different explanation, saying it's due in part to how the U.S. shut down. When you actually look at what we did, even though we shut down, even though it created a great deal of difficulty, we really functionally shut down only about 50 percent. Now, Jake, for the hundredth time, even the public health experts in this administration have said the reason there are more cases in the U.S. is not just because there is more testing. It's because the virus is spreading throughout the country. And when Dr. Fauci was read the president's tweet directed at Congressman Clyburn, he said he stands by what he said earlier, that it is due to a number of factors, not just because there's more testing. Now, it's nonsense, but the president continues to spout it anyway. Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks. Coming up next, how an overnight camp in Georgia could be a warning for every school in the country thinking of reopening. How? We'll explain. In our Healthly Today, a new CDC report about a COVID-19 outbreak at a Georgia summer camp in June could have massive implications when it comes to school reopenings. Just days after this camp opened, the average camper age was about 12, a staffer had chills and had to go home. The staffer tested positive for the virus. In total, 44% of the almost 600 attendees at the camp tested positive for the virus. The camp shut down less than a week after officially fully opening. And while the camp did adapt some of the CDC's guidelines for camps, Some key guidelines, such as campers wearing masks, were never implemented. The data is chilling, and it suggests that children can indeed get infected, and very quickly. Joining me now to discuss is a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Dr. Michael Sag. Uh, Dr. Sag, thanks so much. As a parent, I have to say, I found this terrifying. Staffers wore masks, but there was very quick, widespread infection, including among young kids under six. Of the campers and staff who they got test results for, who tested positive, 51% were between 6 and 10 years old, 44% were between 11 and 17, and 33%, this is of staffers and aides, they were between 18 and 21 years old. How serious of a threat is it of kids getting this virus and infecting their parents and families? Well, Jake, I think it proves exactly what we've been thinking about and leaning towards for a while now, and that is, I don't think the virus cares who you are or even necessarily how old you are. If you give it a chance to infect, it's going to do just that. And when you put people together, especially in closed spaces, like in the case of a camp, a cabin, or in the case of a classroom in a school, we're going to see transmission. Another way to think about it, There are some data that show that if you're in one of the hot zone, the red zone states like Alabama, Georgia, Florida, et cetera, that if you have 10 people in a room, there's a 40% chance that one of those 10 will be infected. And if you have 25, it's a 72% chance that one of the 25 will be infected. So as we start thinking about going back to school, we might be surprised about this story with the campers, but we're gonna see this happening over and over again as we re-enter into schools. It's just gonna be something we should expect. Let's take a look at the CDC guidelines for summer camps so as to take a, some instruction about uh, what schools could or should look like. It says, stay at home when appropriate, Use proper hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette, face masks, ensure ventilation systems operate properly. Now, we should point out at this Georgia camp, campers did not wear masks. Staffers did, but campers did not. 
Windows and doors were not left open for additional ventilation. And of course, campers were grouped by cabins uh, and slept in the cabins. And they also participated in activities such as cheering and singing that may have helped the virus spread. Is is there something for us to learn in this that maybe suggests that schools could be reopened more safely than this camp was? Yeah, I think the one thing it tells us is that business as usual isn't going to work. But like you're implying, if if the students are wearing masks 24-7 while they're in school, at least, and the, the parents and teachers, when they're at school, are wearing masks, that'll help. The ventilation will help. And then, of course, the physical distancing, which we know. So we're going to have to have mitigation strategies as each school opens, especially in what we would call the red zone states, those that have high rates of infection right now. In addition to opening windows and doors, are there air purifiers that can be used? Is there technology along those lines that schools should be considering uh, if they can afford it? Yeah, that may help, but I think what's more important is the immediate environment around each student because if, like I was saying earlier, one in 25 is infected, the air purification is almost too far away. It's so students who are in their immediate vicinity to the right, left, and front or in back who are the vulnerable ones. So if we keep distance between them and everyone's wearing a mask, that's our best chance to mitigate. Filters in the air might help a little bit, but I don't know if it's really worth the expense to go to that. I think it's more important to focus on these other aspects. And of course, if testing were up to speed and we could test students and teachers and parents, that would really help, but our testing is not up to speed. Of the 101 largest school districts in the U.S., 60 are starting their school year with all online classes. Do you think that's the right move? It depends on where they are, but in some ways that might be the best way forward to start. There's going to be, whatever, 40% of the schools are going to be reopening and they can watch and learn. But I think the key thing is if a school decides to reopen, the mitigation strategies that we just talked about, mask wearing, distance, ensuring ventilation, and making sure that everyone uh, is not clumped together indoors in a, in a crowded space is the best we can do. But To be honest, this is a giant experiment. We don't know exactly what to expect, and I think that's what's unnerving about it for a lot of people. The nation's largest school district will be reopening if the infection rate stays below 3%. That's according to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. And once those schools reopen, masks and social distancing will be required, of course. Students and teachers will have access to free testing, and all classrooms must have the necessary protective gear. Um, What do you think of that approach? And is that the one you think schools across the country should take if the infection rate goes down to where hopefully it will be in New York City? Yeah, the New York story is a a success story in the United States. And a 3% positive rate is remarkable compared to, for example, Alabama right now that's about 18%. So I think for a non-red zone state like New York, that seems like a reasonable way to start. All right, Dr. Michael Sag, thank you so much for your expertise. Hope to have you back again soon. New concerns about the mail after a Trump fundraiser takes over the United States Postal Service and the president starts griping about mail-in voting. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, as President Trump keeps up his unfounded claim, backed up with absolutely zero evidence, that mail-in voting will rig 
the election, the, the president, by the way, himself votes by mail, absentee ballot quite often. The Trump loyalists, who since June has served as postmaster general, has put in place cost-cutting measures that postal workers say is causing tremendous backlogs of delivery and could hurt their ability to deliver any ballots by mail, whether absentee or vote by mail, in time for the November election. Their warnings were first reported by the Washington Post. Moreover, most states do not count ballots mailed before Election Day if they arrive after Election Day. In other words, the biggest potential problem of vote by mail, which the president attacks for non-existent widespread fraud, may actually be what President Trump and his team are themselves doing to the Postal Service. CNN's Jessica Dean joins me now to discuss. And Jessica, today the U.S. Postal Service is addressing these claims and concerns. They insist money's a problem, but ballot delivery is not. What are they saying? Right. So the U.S. Postal Service is saying this is all about cost uh, savings and cutting back. But let me show you what the USPS put out in a statement in regards to that. They said we are not slowing down election mail or any other mail. Instead, we continue to employ a robust and proven process to ensure proper handling of all election mail consistent with our standards. But Jake, That's not what I'm hearing from the Postal Workers Union president who I spoke to earlier today who told me they are seeing widespread delays in mail across the country and that he is concerned that if mail is slowing because they're not allowed uh, to have overtime or to do extra trips, which is how they get the mail out, he says, on time, that if they can't do that, that it will affect mail-in voting in the fall. I also spoke with a local president of the uh, Postal Workers Union from Buffalo, New York about this. Here's what she had to say. With the new rules coming in, I am afraid that the election mail will will somewhere get lost in the shuffle. I'm terrified of that. Now, I know as postal workers being on the front line, we'll do everything we can to pull the mail out and to make sure it goes forward. Jake, I also spoke to the Republican Secretary of State for Washington State, which is in the middle of a primary right now. They are all vote by mail there. And she said they're also seeing slowing of mail delivery uh, in their region as well. Jake. And, And Jessica, how is the Postal Service responding to these postal workers who worry that these new rules to cut costs could in fact be politically motivated since the U.S. Postal Service is now headed by a Trump fundraiser and loyalist. That's right. So the U.S. Postal Service also commenting on that exact point. For their part, the U.S. Postal Service saying the notion that the Postmaster General makes decisions concerning the Postal Service at the direction of the president is wholly misplaced and off base. That's what the U.S. Postal Service is saying. But Jake, remember, as you said, the Postmaster General, a Trump loyalist, and the Postal Board of Governors all appointed by President Trump as well. All right, Jessica Dean, thanks for that report. A hurricane threatening a COVID red zone. Could shelters become super spreader events? Is Florida ready? Stay with us. The national lead now, President Trump has just arrived in Florida, where the state hit yet another record of 257 coronavirus-related deaths. And on top of that, a powerful hurricane is just hours from making landfall. CNN's Ryan Nobles is in Tampa, where President Trump's plane just landed. And Ryan, this tarmac event has turned into something of a mini Trump rally. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Jake. In fact, uh, President Trump accepting the endorsement right now of a sheriff's organization as he continues to push this law and order message ahead of the 2020 campaign. And you can see here, he hasn't been able to hold rallies, and there was an attempt here to try and social distance the crowd. That's why they set up all these bike racks. They limited the number of people that were allowed to attend the rally. But that social distancing went out the window despite the repeated asks by the organizers here. And the other thing I would point out is that there are very few people wearing masks in this crowd right now, despite the fact that they were asked to do so. So, again, President Trump has been robbed of those big, massive rallies that he held during 2016 and before the coronavirus pandemic. This is an attempt by the campaign to try and replace this. They will get quite a fair amount of local media coverage out of it. But still, Jake, nothing like those big rallies we saw four years ago. Yeah, his health officials went to Capitol Hill and said that everybody should practice social distancing and wear masks and avoid crowds. And there's President Trump setting the exact opposite example for the nation. Let's talk about the hurricane right now, uh, Ryan. It's a Category 1. It could strengthen to a Category 2. It's anticipated it might. How is Florida handling shelters in light of the dangers of coronavirus? It's a great question, Jake, and the president's actually going to go from here to a briefing on the coronavirus and the hurricane. We should point that out. And they are very worried about shelters, and FEMA has offered guidance to the local communities as to how they should handle it. They're saying less than 50 people at a time, that even some of these shelters should allow for 60 square feet for each person that enters a shelter. Jake, that could be very difficult if this hurricane becomes a big problem here in Florida. All right, Ryan Nobles in Tampa, thank you so much for that. Stay safe. We would like to take a moment to remember two of the more than 153,000 lives lost in the U.S. because of the coronavirus pandemic. A husband and wife in Houston died 15 days apart. 39-year-old Naomi Esquivel and 44-year-old Carlos Garcia leave behind two boys, Nathan and Isaiah. I didn't get to say goodbye to my mom or my dad now, and that's what hurts me the most right now. The couple was married for 24 years. Their sons are 14 and 11. Their uncle is now going to be their legal guardian. The uncle plans to raise the boys alongside his four other children. Check out my Twitter page, at Jake Tapper, during the commercial break for a link to the verified GoFundMe account if you want to help out these boys. May their parents' memories be a blessing. We're going to take a look at how a key U.S. ally is fending for itself months after President Trump suddenly abandoned them. Stay with us. In our world lead today, it's been about nine months since President Trump abruptly abandoned the Kurdish allies of the United States on the Turkish-Syrian border, withdrawing U.S. troops and giving way for Turkish forces to move into that country, displacing Tens of thousands of innocent people, and now without U.S. support, the Kurds are largely left to fend for themselves. We asked CNN's Arwood Damon to give us an update on the Kurdish people and their struggles ever since President Trump abandoned them. You see that smoke? That's from our fields, Amir Nisan says, resigned and sorrowful. It's hardly the first time that Turkey has launched strikes in the Kurdish semi-autonomous region of northern Iraq, targeting the Kurdish separatist group, the PKK strongholds, in the harsh mountain terrain. Amir lived in a small village nearby, fleeing with his family in the middle of the night. His elderly mother shows us how she used to shake with fear. 
For decades, the Turkish state has been at war with the PKK, designated a terrorist organization, not just by Turkey, but also the EU and the United States. This is the largest air and ground offensive since the 1990s. Turkey says it's just trying to protect its borders and stop the Kurdish PKK fighters from moving into Syria. In October of last year, Turkey invaded neighboring northern Syria, going after a related Kurdish group called the YPG, a sister organization to the PKK. What makes this situation so thorny is that the Kurdish force Turkey attacked in Syria makes up the bulk of the fighting forces partnering with the U.S. in the battles against ISIS. The Americans abandoned their Kurdish allies, withdrawing from key positions. The Turks swept in. Tens of thousands of civilians fled. Today, Turkey still occupies the border region, carrying out joint patrols with the Russians and the Americans. With the presence of different forces uh, comes uh, uh, the complication of uh, the need to deal with each one uh, of them uh, separately, which uh, each of them also has its own interests, its own goals. When it comes to the U.S., it's all about ISIS. They frequently tout their partnership fighting ISIS with the Kurdish YPG as part of the Syrian Democratic Forces. And I want to describe how we are partnering with the SDF, the current threat from ISIS, and let you know of some other areas, some other topics where we are collaborating to help the people of this region. And yet, when the Kurds need Big Brother America, or for that matter, anyone to step in and help them, all remain on the sidelines. In northern Iraq, Amir's beloved farmlands are charred, destroyed. His children miss running around outside in the cool breeze. Blame is shared, he says. Our government can't do anything in the face of Turkey or the PKK. Countries need to get involved. It can't go on like this. But it will as it always has. The Kurds have a proverb that arose from their history of betrayal and abandonment. No friend but the mountains, they say. Arwa Damon CNN, Istanbul. No friend but the mountains. Our thanks to Arwa Damon for that report. Tune in Sunday to State of the Union, where our guests will include White House Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks, Uh, The majority whip of the House, James Clyburn, Congressman James Clyburn, Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, and of course, uh, Stacey Abrams. It's 9 a.m. and noon only on CNN. You can follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Thanks for watching. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.